everybody. Welcome to the Kurt Schilling Baseball Show. I believe this is episode four. Episode four, right, Bill? That's correct. Episode four, only our first one, though, in your brand new day. Yes. Yes. This is the first one in the uh, studio on my property at Schilling Farms. Uh, and I will someday give you guys a look behind the scenes at Schilling Farm and Rescue so you can meet Hodor and Arya and Mance and all my animals. Um, lots going on. Spring training is underway. Uh, new rules are, are coming into play. It seems like every day, every game to some extent. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about that as well as uh, uh, delve into some pitchers that are hurt. Uh, and maybe I can help give you guys a, a, a realistic timeline on them returning, if they're going to return. Um, some some tough ones, too. Uh, Andrew Painter uh, of the Phillies, who uh, I, I saw as a huge piece of that puzzle this year. Um, and then uh, we're talk about um, closers, closer by committee, which sucks. Um, and one of the most amazing and probably longest shots ever uh, in the history of gambling or betting was the winner of Major League Baseball's most handsome manager. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, but anyway, uh, Billy, how are we doing today? We're doing great. Uh, I, I'm really fascinated by how the pitch clock is being tinkered with by yes. some pitchers. And I can absolutely, I I can absolutely see myself as one of these guys. And by one of these guys, I mean Max Scherzer in his last down. He didn't have a great down. He went two and two thirds, five hits, struck out one, so it wasn't a great. And, but those things are, are are okay in spring training. But he clearly is testing the boundaries of the pitch clock, and he touches on one thing that I think you're going to see him do, and some other guys do. Um, Couple events. Uh, he threw a pitch to Victor Robles just as the clock was reset. Called for a balk. Runner went from first to second. With two outs and two strikes and Raleigh Adams in the third inning, Scherzer froze in the set position and let the pitch clock down to seven before Adams called timeout. On the next pitch, this is this is where uh, it's going to come into play. On the next pitch, Scherzer became set as the 22nd clock started, and I would absolutely be doing this. Adams finally stepped into the box with the clock at 11 seconds. Scherzer immediately delivered, getting a swinging strike on a 96-mile-hour fastball. You're going to see that something's going to change to that extent because hitters are going to, to bitch and moan about that one because that one's going to be one that guys are going to be doing a lot of. Uh, he also had an Indian double play called off because the pitch clock had narrowly run out. So what he, I think what's going to happen is you're going to see um, the pitchers in the big leagues, the good ones, will find a way to make this pitch clock work. And I still think it's an enormous advantage, despite what uh, uh, Kevin Millar and his brilliant insight uh, thought. Um, and then Buck Showalter after the game. And Buck is a guy who will absolutely – if you want to watch how managers in the big leagues are going to react and play these new rules, watch this guy. Buck Showalter is probably the most prepared manager I've ever been around, ever played for. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I got traded to Arizona in 2000 and got a brief chance to play with four buck. And, and he is a dear, dear friend. And I think probably one of the game's best managers. I, I, I think he's got a good chance to do something. Anyway, um, he said this after the game, uh, Max and a lot of veteran pitchers and pitchers in general are going to use this time to test some things and make some adjustments on end quote manager, best manager, Jeff Buckshoulder said, everybody up here is looking for a competitive edge hitters, pitchers, catchers, 
And it's a good time to be testing those things. I can't agree more. This is, you have to, so in spring training, you go through a couple stages. You go from the young guy whose mental approach to every day in camp is, my God, I want to make the team. There's the younger guy whose mental approach is, I just want them to remember me. To the guy who's kind of established, to the guy who knows he's going to be pitching opening day and shows up at spring training as your ace and is getting ready. And, and those guys, those veteran guys that kind of have roster spots secured, you're going to see them pick, pushing and, and, and uh, uh, the boundaries and the envelope on every one, especially the pickoff rule. I'm still very curious to see. How the inmate, the pickoff rule, and I, you know, Bill, when I, we were talking about it early on, I told you I thought the pickoff rule would would be by a landslide the most impactful rule change. I don't know if it's either just not being tested yet, or if, but but this pitch clock is going to have a far bigger impact on hitters than I was thinking. I, and I think, Kurt, that it's partially because these games don't mean as much that you don't have guys stealing and making as many attempts and playing that game yet. I think when we get deeper into so, spring training, I'm going to interrupt you there. I'm going to yeah. interrupt you there. Um, players don't take that mentality. No, that's interesting. No, they don't. They, no, they don't. Because within the game, you can only play it a certain way. Pitchers won't be throwing as hard as they are during the regular season, but their mental approach, while it might vary and it might be a little, it, it, it's different than the regular season. They're trying to get results. Base runners are trying to get results. Like you think about the young guys who are, are being kept, uh, Bobby Wood Jr., who is an elite runner, Corbin Carroll, who is an elite runner. Those are the guys that are going to be, they, they'll be testing. And, and those guys are, are as worried, I think, more worried about making the roster in a Corbin Carroll situation, even though I think he's going to make it. But I think as you see spring training go, those base runners are going to change some things and try some things. And then you'll see... And I would use in my era, for people that remember, Jeff Bagwell and Scott Rowland, like a Dave Hollins, um, guys who weren't elite speed, but who stole 15 to 25 bases a year just because pitchers were dumb. Right. And they'll test it too. But I think that'll happen as spring training goes. But but to your point, it, it, and I, it's one thing I've always kind of chuckled about when, when fans say, you know, oh, this was a meaningless game. Those don't exist for players. Now, veteran players, you know, uh, you think about your Miguel Cabreras and your Justin Berlanders for the most pitching. You can't ever pitch a meaningless game. It just doesn't work that way. I don't for good pitchers anyway. Hitters they might go up trying to do some unique stuff during an at bat that they wouldn't do during the season. But for the most part, there's a, there's max effort in the act. You know of hitting. Maybe not base running. Maybe they they don't run as hard down the first or whatever. But it's one of the things that makes the Major League Baseball All Star Game. So unique and 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 still amazing to watch, in my opinion, because it's the only professional sports all star game where the effort is the same as the regular season. Yeah. So, no, I just wanted to throw that in there, but but yeah, I I, I think there's I think as we get going, I think you're going to see. And and here's the thing, a guy like and I, I say this, a guy like Buck Showalter will go to a a, a kid like Batty, right? Who is is. You know, the, people aren't sure if he's going to make the roster or whatever. But for the most part, would be a guy that would go to that guy if he's on the roster and say, hey, listen, kid, you're going to break with this team. You know, I want you to get comfortable with these new rules because you're going to be in the big leagues on opening day. And that 22nd at bat is going to go by very, very quickly. Or that 22nd pitch block. So start getting your, whatever. You know, that's the kind of things that Buck would think through and, and be ahead on. So it'll be interesting to see. But two things. 
I, we haven't seen the, uh, the, the pickoff throw stuff impact nearly as much as I thought it was. And the pitch clock is going to be drastically more impactful on hitters than it's going to be pitchers. So Agreed. Agreed. Uh, along the same line, staying in New York and staying outside of Yankee Stadium, uh, Verlander pitched uh, last Saturday. Uh, 40-year-old Justin Verlander, by the way. And, and for anybody that doesn't know, that 40 years old was my age in my final season in 2007. He went three innings, 35 pitches, 28 strikes, which is Right, his stuff. Used all his pitches, gave up an earned run, two hits, three punch outs. 96 on his four-seam fastball. So uh, for you fantasy guys who have your draft during spring training, I think it's comfortable to say we're, we're what? Less than two weeks into games, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. we're less than two weeks into game. So, and I might have said this and briefly touched on this last time. I always got to spring training um, with the intent that opening day, I wouldn't be on a pitch count because I was going to be the opening day guy or, you know, or Randy or Pedro was late in my career, but I wanted to make sure when I went out on opening day that the, the clicker wasn't uh, an impact on, on, on me coming or going in a game. Um, and so I showed up at spring training with a very unique throwing program that allowed me to get going. I wanted 28 to 32 innings in spring training. Um, my next, the last start in spring training, I wanted to be seven innings or a hundred pitches. Um, and then my final start would be three, four innings, 45 to 55 pitch. Kind of a thing where I was just kind of tuning up. Um, but I wanted to make sure that all I knew mentally where I was, but I wanted to make sure that my pitching coach and my manager weren't going to pull the trigger early on an opening day start. And and Tito was the was was very good about that. So um it'll watch the workload for your pitchers. You'll see some pay attention. You you might not see some guys would be throwing backfield games. Uh, I never pitched against the divisional opponent in spring training because we had the heavily unbalanced schedule, which is now different. Um, but I never wanted to, I didn't need to face uh, Tampa or the Yankees or uh, anybody in the AL East or whatever in the NL East when I was there or the NL West, because I had video on all of them. So I was going to, I was going to, you know, and then I would talk to my advanced scouts about the young players that were coming up, but I never wanted to give, uh, give hitters uh, in my division an early look. So that led to a lot of uh, AAA games for me. Um, and I know, I remember early in my career, a lot of people were bitching about it. Um, but uh, when you get to a place where you can make those calls, like a Verlander can or a Scherzer can, uh, those are the things you'll see in spring training. Uh, on another thing, and, and I got to tell you, Bill, I haven't paid a lot of attention to this. Um, the Pitchcom, which is the device set up between the pitcher and catcher, uh, to give uh, pitches from the pitcher and catcher. Um, and the, this is the first year that they're going to allow the pitcher to use it and call his own pitches. Yes. And I got to tell you, I have a couple thoughts about this. Number one, um, so apparently there's a funny story because I, I, if I remember correctly, in the first week of spring training games, one of the catchers had the, had the uh, volume up on his device and the hitter and the umpire could hear every pitch. Um, but... I wouldn't use this. I wouldn't like to use it either because when I, and I, I say, I don't think it's any different now, but when I played the shake off was, was potentially a tactic, right? Um, I would all, and my catchers understood that. And that's one of the reasons why I continued to work with the same catcher all year. I would use a shake. I, catcher wouldn't give me a sign and I'd shake and then I'd shake and then I'd shake and he put down fastball and I'd go, yes. 
there are hitters who that impacts. Hitters who will think through a pitch sequence. I'm up here, look, I'm looking for a fastball in this count. Oh, wait a minute, is he shaking three times? You know, to, to some hitter, to, to, to not, hitters like Manny, that doesn't impact, or Manny Ramirez, or a, I don't think a Mike Trout, but other hitters, it will. And if you're a four-pitch guy like a Verlander, um, or a power guy like Scherzer or Kershaw, the shake can be effective. You know, this is the pitch comm is a device to get the game sped up. Or I think it was more uh, the Houston Astros um, <laughs> cheating and uh, uh, the pitch comm was, was some. But, you know, for 100 years, people were able to give and, and take signs and have it be OK. For some reason, today's modern athletes uh, are after a little bit of an edge. Anyway, uh, Corbin Burns, um, who was the 2021 Cy Young winner. Um, Pitchers are, are experimenting with this. Some pitchers are experimenting with it, including Corbin Burns. Many say Burns has the best slider since Rivera. Uh, it was a cutter, not a slider. So um, sorry about that. But uh, Smoltz would be a guy who I would compare a slider to. He has, he hit, and this is kind of hard for people to comp, and you can't comprehend this listener in the box. He can throw it. His slider has been clocked at 96. And that's, that's kind of Nintendo-ish. Um <laughs> In his first and only start this spring, he used it to try and get used to it. It's a nine-button device that would tell the pitcher what he wants to throw. He said he only used it for a few pitches, but he hopes it will help him with the pitch clock. Um, yeah, okay. So so you can see a guy using it for the – it'll be interesting, and I'm sure some guys will use it. I If I was going to use it to me, I would – I don't know that I would do I don't know that I would do it because I think – there are certain counts I want to shake, and I don't want to intermingle the device and the shake, right? Uh, first of all, I don't want to add that difficulty factor. Um, and uh, there, there's a there's a um, there's a good tweet. Uh, uh, I believe it. The, the Twitter account is Pitching Ninja, right, Bill? Yes, Pitching yeah, Ninja. Yeah, and that's, that's where crazy. the video I saw. Of, yeah, of Granky <laughs> yeah. using it, and yeah, he looked so locked in on. Oh, yeah. So a guy like Zach Granke is a different cat, guys. He's just a different cat. Um, and there are things that he does. Uh, and supremely, supremely talented, obviously. I think there's a strong case to be made that he's a, he's a potential Hall of Fame guy. Um, but he's he was one of those guys that would manipulate and use the hell out of that system. So um that's kind of it for the spring training pitching stuff as far as as uh new rules pitch com goes uh i want to talk about a couple pitchers health next so we're gonna we're gonna jump on some uh, some stuff for you guys that are fantasy players for you uh if you're dumb enough to bet spring training uh i'll give you some some insight into some guys and then there's uh there's somebody who uh we definitely want to send the show's thoughts and prayers out to uh who uh, recently came uh, received a diagnosis that uh, we want to talk about. So uh, on to the, the probably the most important thing. If you're a fan of a team, if you're a fantasy owner, if you're a gambler, the thing you need to pay attention to, to me, above all else, is the pitchers. Specifically starting pitchers, but pitchers in general, because spring training is where uh, the attrition rate, uh, I think, elevates, ramps up. And it's, it's uh, based on that, what I talked about last week was that seven-step process of effort that increases and it can only increase when you experience the act moving from the bullpen to batting practice, batting practice to a spring game, yada, yada, yada. Um, a kid who I, I'm in love with um, uh, from one of my former teams, uh, Andrew Painter went down this weekend um, 
And the discussion was around his elbow. Obviously, the first thing everybody thinks is Tommy John. Uh, and I think that's probably appropriate nowadays. Um, they'll be extra cautious with this guy. Um, but, Bill, I'm so, so I'll tell you what I do believe for sure. There's no chance he breaks camp opening day with the right. team at this point because I think that they'll be extremely cautious. So you're probably talking about, I don't know, 10 days to two weeks of no throwing which is, is in many ways is a, is a reset uh, for a lot of the, th- because you don't go five, four days in the off season, three days without throwing, much less 10 to 14. Um, and then a lot of it will depend on, on the, the pitcher himself. But I would imagine if you're a Phillies fan, don't expect him to be in the opening day lineup. Uh, hopefully this is just inflammation, but uh, I can tell you this. Um, I believe it was oh, when, when back when I played and, and I researched, um, the body. Uh, I sat in on an autopsy. Uh, I wanted to understand and study the, the the workings and the machinations of the shoulder and the elbow. Um, and I hurt my shoulder a couple times, had a couple of shoulder surgeries, never had anything done to my head, bone spurs, but nothing uh, structural. Um, and one thing I learned over nine, back when I played, it might be different now, over 90% of the Tommy John surgeries in until they opened them up, they didn't involve some pre-existing shoulder condition. You generally don't ever get uh, elbow issues without a, an underlying shoulder issue. Um, and if you understand how the body works, you kind of understand when your shoulder starts to become unstable, then things start to move in your elbow in ways and places and times they're not supposed to, um, which is why you see a lot of Tommy John. I also think there's a lot of Tommy John done uh, almost unnecessarily in the sense that I think pitchers, you see these guys built, they come out, they go in throwing 91 and they come out of Tommy John throwing 95. And, um, and those surgeries, Kurt, they're doing to younger and younger kids. Yeah, and yeah, those yeah. are the ones that I really think are very suspect. Yeah. Well, here's the problem. The reason these guys come back, cause I did it too. I went into shoulder surgery being a 92 guy. I came out of shoulder surgery 12 months later being a 95, 96, 97 guy. Had nothing to, obviously had something to do with surgery. But the surgery was far down the list on reasons why. The most important was that I got educated on my body and the arm and the shoulder and how it works and how I make it stronger. Understanding the difference between pain and injury uh, and ache. You're you're sore every day of your life after you're 18. Um, But pain is different. and. that's why most guys will come out the other side when they're healthy, being uh, throwing much harder. Um, so pay attention this week. Uh, I would expect him to be out in a couple weeks, but I, I would be stunned. Stunned. I would put very good money on the fact he's not going to break camp opening day, but I think he would have if he had been healthy. Um, and again, this goes back to you got a young kid who's, who's going into spring training and making his first one or two appearances. The effort level is different, especially for young kids. They're all out. They're trying to make the team. Uh, light up the gun and all the things go with that. And that's not uh, that's not a good thing for health. Um, other pitchers that uh, another guy who I'm, I love, we talked about last week, Tyler Glasnow of Tampa, uh, his oblique issue now out six to eight weeks, uh, missed most of last year after having Tommy John. That's what we talked about last week. So you're looking at a guy, excuse me, oblique is probably as bad as it gets for a pitcher next to a major arm injury because you can't throw. So you're looking at a guy who's going to be down six to eight weeks. Which means to me, you're looking at a guy who, so what, uh, eight weeks is two months. You're probably talking about four months at a minimum before he's back. If everything goes perfectly, 
He's going to sit for eight weeks. He has to restart. That's pretty much eight weeks from starting to play catch again to being game ready. Eight weeks, maybe a little less depending, but but we're talking about probably four months. So if you look at it's what, March, early March, April, May, June, July, somewhere around the all-star break probably, maybe a second half guy, um, if, if that timeline of being out holds up. Lance McCullers uh, of the Astros, um, he has elbow issues. He he uh he had Tommy John, right? He had Tommy John. He did. He did. Yes. He missed yes. he he missed a lot of a year last yeah. year. So um he hasn't started playing catch yet. Um so if I'm an Astros fan, best case is a second half guy. Best case. And I hope it it is the best case because yeah, I, I love that kid. I love his stuff, I love his compete. Um, Boston, and this is what happens when you when you sign pitchers with with records, uh, track records that you know of. James Paxton, when he's healthy, he is a stud. Um, he's only had five starts the last two years. He left his uh, uh, Friday start with a grade one hamstring pull. Um, same thing as as the abdominal in the sense that he's not playing catch while he's out, right? So I would tell you to uh, let's talk. Four weeks. Four weeks is is the is the is the window. If everything goes okay, he's back in a month. Every week after the first week that he doesn't throw, add a week to the or to two weeks to the back end. So um, you know, uh, if it ends up not being serious, uh, maybe he doesn't. He doesn't. I don't see him breaking with the team because um, you're talking about what twenty some days until opening day. So. That won't happen for Paxton, I don't think, unless he's right back, but I don't imagine that's going to be the case. Uh, and Dodgers closer Daniel Hudson. Uh, he has right angle tenderness, um, which, uh, uh, you know, I, I understand ankles a little bit. Um, and I don't know what that means, right? I don't know what that means. Oh, just I, Some guys are different. I mean, I played with guys who, if they weren't 100%, they were hurt. Um, and I play with other guys who, if it wasn't cut off, they were playing. Um, so that's kind of, I, and he's a closer. I don't, that one doesn't kind of strike me as being scary or serious uh, until it, it, it's announced as such. And then uh, to speak of scary or serious, uh, the White Sox, Liam Hendricks. Um, I don't know how many people know this. He was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, he's in camp, uh, which is awesome, as he undergoes treatment. Um, and no timetable, which nobody cares about, honestly, uh, on his, except for him, obviously. Um, Kendall Graveman will probably take over closing duties, which, again, nobody really cares about in light of the story. So uh, this shows uh, thoughts and prayers from my family and I and, and this show and everybody at OutKick to Liam and his family um, to get better fast. Uh, you know, it's it certainly can be done. I, I, I can remember. Watching in 2007, I can remember watching John Lester pitch the clincher of the World Series after being out a year before with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and you're talking about a different breed of human being uh, when you're talking about professional athletes and their mental capacity to uh, to overcome. Um, so, so that brings up the question yeah. I've wanted to ask you, Kurt, which is there's a bunch of teams this year that are entering the season with a closer by committee. What are your thoughts on closer by committee versus having a main closer? Uh, in two words, it's ass. Um, 
here's the problem. This is where sabermetrics and baseball clash. And the sabermetric guys don't understand why the baseball guys can't just get it. Um, to when, when the sabermetric guys look at a bullpen, they look at a list of data, right? First pitch strikes, uh, who gets the first hit, the first hitter out, which is the big hitter for the reliever, more than the other guys. Um, walks, you know, your whip, uh, uh, how you hold runners, all these other things. The problem is that none of those factors account for the inning in which that happens. And unfortunately for sabermetric guys, Pitchers think differently in the ninth inning than they do in the eighth, than they do in the seventh, than they do in the sixth. It's just human nature because everybody in the ninth inning hitting in a game that's close is hitting with the mentality of the tying runs on third. I need to get him in or get on base. That's a different mental approach than they take for their other bats during a game for the most part. Pitchers have to change and elevate in the ninth inning their mental approach to, to pitching. And some guys just can't do it. It's just not, I mean, I can remember, I think it was uh, in my career, 2003, the Red Sox went with the closer by committee to open the season and it, they had a great bullpen. It turned out to be a disaster. It doesn't work. Now, if you bring your pitchers up through the minor leagues on a closer by committee system, maybe that's different. Maybe that is different. But the fact of the matter is pitchers and hitters step on the mound in the ninth inning and at the plate in the ninth inning with a different mentality. You can like that or not like that. You can call them wusses or whatever, but that's just fact. And, and just because you deny that doesn't make it any less true. So you have to have the guys with the right. And, and I think when I'm starting to see Bill, and, and I actually, it's kind of a 1970s mentality, is the, the guy, the stopper. I'm going to bring this guy in, in the seventh inning because the most important situation is right now. Runners on second and third, nobody out. It's a one-run game. You know, you'd never think of bringing Mariano Rivera in that situation. But teams will bring in their stopper, the guy who has the ridiculous strikeout rate, to get out of that seventh inning jam because that's the most important situation probably for the game. And then we'll fill the ninth inning out however we need to. That's a very different – That's a, but, you know, back in the 70s, that guy that came in the seventh was, you know, Goose Gossin, who's still in the ninth. That's a different – it's a different thing now because they want – uh, their relievers available every day they can be. So that's a very, it's a deep, different thing. Um, and I remember, I got to tell you, one of the things that you need to understand as fans is there are teams, and this is honest, I had a manager, more than one manager tell me this. There are teams who the general manager will go down to the manager's office and tell the manager who he can use from the bullpen that night. Obviously, managers despise that. But the front office, in their minds, they've calculated uh, pitchers effectiveness this pitching on back-to-back -back days, pitchers effectiveness this pitching with a day off, pitching three days in a row, and they have the numbers that say he can or do this, he can't do this, or he excels at this, and he's you know, um, unfortunately, that's not that. I don't want to say that that translates uh, verbatim. It's also one of the reasons why I think sabermetrics is costing teams World Series and playoff series because. Sabermetrics to me don't apply in October. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not a fan. I don't I don't know how fans feel about it, but I think pitching changes are boring as hell. Well, I nobody really likes the pitching changes, but I also think fans, as a general rule, love stars and closers are stars. 
Right. They come in they, situations you expect them to come in and you expect them to perform. But but behind that is the fact that the rule change of a pitcher having to face three hitters changes everything. Yeah, it sure does. Changes everything because now what you're seeing is the the elimination of the left-handed specialist. Um because generally the left-handed specialist was a guy who could abuse lefties and got owned by righties and can't do it anymore. So uh, that, yeah, that's probably one of the bigger reasons why. And I, I still, I disagree with that rule too, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and then, uh, okay. So uh, I was saving this for near the end of the show for very specific reasons. He's going to be a guest on the show at some point. Uh, and he's one of my favorite human beings of all time. Our careers were very intertwined for a long period of time, but and I can promise you that if I ask the viewers of this show to rank the Major League Baseball managers top to bottom on the handsome list, which is what players were asked to do for this poll, the winner of the award from the players would not be the winner of the award from the fans. Um, because the most handsome manager, and this guy's anything but handsome, uh, even though I do love him deeply, uh, the most handsome manager in the big leagues. So what? Here, let me let me back up. Gambling.com used an app to rank Major League Baseball's 30 managers by their looks. A press release was sent out to many members of the baseball media announcing that this man took on the title with a handsome manager score of 7.96. I don't know how he got above a five, but Terry Francona of the Indians won most handsome manager. Tito, my God. Uh, the brainwash that's been done there for that to happen is is impressive. Um, well, because... and the really cool part, Kurt, well, is the team then made up T-shirts. Of... Yes. <laughs> and, and this is where, so, you know what? I'm going to quickly, this, when, when, when we talk about the dynamics of a clubhouse, one of the things that, that you can't understand as a fan, but that is so instrumental and huge are the clubhouse guys. The clubhouse manager, I had some of the greatest clubhouse managers you can ever, ever imagine. Roger and uh, uh, Joe, and, I mean, just phenomenal guys. But they're very much your wife away from home. They have a huge impact on the environment in the clubhouse. The, cl the, the clubhouse manager had T-shirts printed up, and all the players got them. And, again, it might seem like a little thing, um, but things like that matter. Uh, and the impact it's, it's, it's a very, it's very unique to the club. They're the only 30 guys with the t-shirts. And I know, again, that it might sound trivial, but those are the things, excuse me. And this is exactly the clubhouse I would expect to have in Cleveland because Tito, oh, excuse me, always had these clubhouses. Um, so you got 30 guys walking around with the most handsome manager. And I guarantee you the daily, uh, ribbing is phenomenal. Um, and to be heard, but Tito, Terry Francona. <laughs> is walking around with most handsome manager t-shirt that he won by vote. Uh, if that doesn't tell you where the state of the game is, then nothing, nothing will. And by the way, don't go to sleep on the Indians. Uh, and I know most people aren't, but they're probably uh, going to, uh, they got some legacies there. Shane Bieber, who is as good as they come when he's healthy. Um, Aaron Savale, uh, two legacies. And Zach Plesek, Cal Quantrill, two guys I've played with their fathers. Um, and then Emmanuel, uh, place 
James Karinchak and Trevor Steven. Is it Steven or Stefan? Trevor Stefan. 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 Trevor Stefan. Setting them up. Um, nice staff. Obviously, uh, again, the reason you you like the Indians is because in a di- and, and if you look at their metrics last year, they just found a way to score enough runs and win each game uh, more than not. Um, but that team will institute and implement these new rules in a way that gives them an advantage. Um, and Tito has learned, I think, since his younger days with me, that he can't leave his starter out there for 147 pitches. Um, and I think he's probably as good as there is at managing. Him and Buck were two of the best I ever saw at managing staffs. And generally, you will find a situation where neither one of those guys will have the wrong guy on the mound for the hitter that's at the plate. And that's, in this day and age, that's um, that's not a small thing. Absolutely. Uh, hey, we've, we've got some yep. time left here, and we've okay. been soliciting questions from uh, the people that are watching the podcast and at outkick.com. Yep. And a bunch of the questions coming in are about your time with the Phillies. So I'm going to start there. Mike Johnson okay. asks... Tell me your best story from the 1993 Phillies locker room. All right. First off, I can't because I think there are legal implications of telling that story Um, because I don't know if there's a statute of limitations. What I can tell you is, um, and I didn't realize at the time, but, but as I, as I played, I did. When you played on teams that, that were uh, successful and kind of, we knew in spring training that we were very good. Uh, I think, I don't know. And I think we knew after opening day and after opening series, when we swept Houston, this was the year they had signed Doug Drabeck and Greg Sundell and we're supposed to be contenders. We swept them. Um, we, we had a lot of confidence, but that clubhouse was one that guys would sleep over and guys would show up at 11 a.m. on the game days to be there. It was so fun. It was so, there's so much energy and, Every day you would hear something out of Lenny's mouth or Crocky's mouth um, that you couldn't make up. Uh, we, we, I mean, there was some contention in there. Uh, guys who didn't get along on Mitch and I never got along. But at 705, it never mattered. We, uh, we, we killed for each other in a sense and we played for each other. And that clubhouse was... I guess the only word I can use is nonstop. And and the other thing was, and this was early in my career, uh, and I wasn't a big part of this, but the training room in that clubhouse was probably open till 2 to 3 a.m. every night with the same four to six guys in it after a game. Um, Crucky would generally sleep on the couch in the video room, uh, wake up to a breakfast of hot dogs and mayonnaise, and then go three for five and play legitimately studly first base. I mean, it was just, it was so, it, because there were, we were, we truly were kind of everybody else. We were the island of misfit toys. You know, we, we said, uh, I think we said that the saying when we went to Atlanta for the playoffs was, you know, at the time, Atlanta was TBS, America's team. It was America's team against America's most wanted. And, and we played that to the hilt in that city. We loved our city and our fans and our city and fans loved us. That was a very fun team as a fan to watch. Um, I do remember once you got to the playoffs, your reliever 
Mitch Williams had thrown so many innings. Yeah, he was done. And he clearly tired when it got into it. Mike W. asks, do you think that Jim Fergosi should have used the bullpen differently in 93? On hindsight, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I should have kept Roger Mason in. However, what you had was, and remember, Mitch blew every save in the postseason that year. He blew game one of the Brave series, game five of the Brave series. He blew uh, game sit four of the World Series and game six of the World Series. He was done. And, that, and, and, and by the way, not only was he done, but he was facing one of the best lineups I've ever faced in my life. Um, but Roger had thrown a great inning. Roger threw really well that postseason. But here's the thing. You got to understand how how this is where human being a human comes into play. Jim Fergosi, had he not brought Mitch Williams in and Joe Carter did what he did off of Doug, uh, uh, Roger Mason, we would be sitting here saying, why didn't you do what you've done all year? And he played. That was the safe move. Uh, it was a nightmare move because you had Ricky Henderson leading off the bottom of the ninth, which is probably the surest odd you'll ever get on a walk. Um, and Mitch was throwing 85, 86. He wasn't doing anything, you know, and then he throws a slider, which he never really actually had one, um, to Joe Carter that doesn't slide. Uh, and, it, I, you know, Mitch was – it wasn't <clears> – <throat> I don't think any of us, you know, in a sense blame him, even though he was the guy. I mean, Lenny would probably disagree with that. But the fact of the matter is you win as a team, you lose as a team. And that team won together and lost together. And – it was the only year of my career that ended in a way that I was thinking it shouldn't have ended. Uh, that team was, in my mind, we were supposed to win it. And that city deserved that winner. So there you go. That's tremendous. Hey, uh, for all you listening out there, please get on outkick.com. Send us your questions. My email is bill.graff, at outkick.com. Email me questions. Please tune in to OutKick.com so that you can see all the baseball coverage we're doing and all the other great articles that are written on OutKick.com. Hurt. And you can follow me on Twitter at Garrick38. Uh, and, and please, I, I, I've i grown in love with uh, and very fond of the OutKick.com website. We're going we're gonna to build this brand to be something, uh, hopefully someday to rival Barstool uh, without the boobs. Um, Oh, without all the boobs. There may be some boobs. I don't know. But um, uh, I'm enjoying this and, and having a blast. Bill, I look forward to it. I will see you again in a couple of days. Yep. We'll be back Friday. Have a good one, everybody. Take care, buddy.